my name's Anna Dixon, Director of Policy here at the King's Fund, and I'm moving from speaking and being a panel member to chairing this session. And I'd like to introduce the four panellists for uh, this part of the conference. We've got four different perspectives, and the idea is that we'll have a, a brief time at the beginning where I'm going to ask each of our panellists a few questions, and then we all will open up for uh, questions and broader discussion. The main challenge that we've set the panellists is to try and think from these different perspectives about what some of the coalition government's proposals mean for PCTs, acute hospitals, general practice and patients and the public. And uh, to help us think through that, I've got uh, Robert Crichton, who is Chief Executive of NHS Ealing. To my uh, immediate left, uh, Malcolm Lolori, who is Chief Executive of University Hospitals Leicester NHS Trust. To my immediate right, Professor Steve Field, who is Chair of the Royal College of General Practitioners. And to my far right, Jeremy Taylor, Chief Executive of uh, National Voices. So perhaps I can start with you, Robert. What do the coalition government proposals, do you think, mean for the future of primary care trusts? I wish I knew. (laughs) (laughs) Because there are some contradictory and uncertain descriptions in their document. Mm. Um, Just, I mean, there's an issue about continuing, maintaining, increasing their role as public health organisations, which is absolutely fine. That's what we do already, up to a point. We would always like to do more. But I think the real question is going to be what is the role and nature of PCTs if that is the right name for uh, an organisation and I've always thought for the last six years at least that it was a very unfortunate name if it's the right name for an organisation which is in some way helping to support that's the phraseology I'd currently use uh, GP commissioning the unanswered question in my mind about the GP commissioning uh, question the issue is accountability who is going to have accountability for the questions that were being raised on the left-hand side of the room earlier on? Who, at the moment, I'm the accountable officer for five, six hundred million pounds worth of public money. Um, if we go into the new world, who is going to be held to account for the maintenance of the budget and the delivery of quality against that budget? If it's me, uh, which it may be, but it's not at all clear that that would be how it would be, then I don't think that anybody has set out yet how that would be exercised. Secondly, if it's me, then I need to be able to deliver working with my GP colleagues. And let me be absolutely clear, I don't know a chief executive of a primary care trust anywhere in the country who isn't in principle strongly in favour of uh, engaging with GPs to improve commissioning. But in practice, it is very, very difficult. And the point raised a couple of times earlier about capacity and capability is worrying me even more than the point about policy. I am absolutely incomprehending about how we are going to do what it is that we are expected to do, both in keeping the show on the road and in making change, if we are also expected to reduce management costs of the scale that are expected. So a very, very uncertain future. Yeah. And what about this idea of uh, elected reps? that seem to come more from the, you know, the orange flavour uh, part of the coalition. One pessimist down the front saying this wouldn't last too long. 
but the idea that you might have closer uh, democratic links to local authorities or indeed directly elected people on your board? A closer link with local authorities? I, I'm not sure how they could get closer in my case. Uh, coterminosity seems to me absolutely essential. Uh, it's a real problem in London. We've got uh, coterminosity, which works in my mind as well as it possibly could, but of course it has the disadvantage of, as people would see it, uh, imposing an additional cost, which I regard as a benefit if when you start to feed through the benefits of working, working closely with your local authority. And so having we already have on our board a very, very close interconnection inter uh, with people chosen by the local authority without even having to ask the government's permission to do it. So no big deal. Having local people elected would change the nature of things, yes. But if that's what policy says, that's fine. It's not a problem. But I still need people to do the work, please. And you mentioned the, the, the management costs there. What would that actually look like in practice if a third of management costs of PCTs were taken out? Is this a, um, is this a public meeting or is it... Uh, what, 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 what are the rules of engagement here today? Well, I think you can uh, ask for the audience's... Uh, uh... <laughs> no, I mean, I'm being serious. When I think in, in, in London, and again, there are reasons for this, instead of being 30%, it's really 50%. Um, because we have invested in trying to improve the capacity to do our job. Uh, we have created mechanisms at London level, at a sector level, to address the issues that Chris raised earlier about information, about capacity to do things. And for that reason, if we're taking the 0809 baseline, instead of losing 30, we've got to lose 50%. That makes everybody's job, and I mean the job of the new commissioners, whoever they are, GP consortia, absolutely undoable. So the only way that you can deal with it is by finding ways around it. And I wouldn't in public say anything more than that, because if we are required in an absolute sense to, to go down that route, then I think that, that the system is, is un, unworkable. And the scale of the quip challenge means that the, the real savings will simply be lost. There will be nobody with grip. And people uh, of my age who have had some small experience of dealing with very, very difficult financial circumstances earlier in their careers, uh, won't be there anymore. Uh, and I think there is the risk of massive um, loss of experience if we go through another thing like, what was it called, commissioning a patient-led NHS? Okay. I'm sure we're going to come back to uh, many of these issues, uh, but thanks, uh, Robert. Um, I'm going to turn now to Steve. Obviously, GPs, in a sense, are the flip side of some of uh, Robert's uh, uncertainties about the future. Uh, what do you make of the coalition proposals? Obviously, probably the key one that we were debating earlier this morning, the idea that GPs are going to have a greater role in commissioning and uh, take on hard budgets. Well, thanks, Anna. I, I mean, I'm an optimi optimist, uh, I think, and a realist. Um, I remember last year, it was a year before, we went to the 60th anniversary of the NHS dinner at, Guy, at Tommy's and Ken Clark gave a talk as a very good Labour minister that he was, uh, saying that uh, fund holding um, really should have carried on. The problem was that actually it was a good policy which was stopped. And he praised Alan Milburn in being brave and putting forward a policy which he thought was a good one, and then it stopped. And the real danger, I think, is that uh, I do believe this is a good policy. It's an extension of what should have been an effective commissioning policy if we'd have got that right. And the danger is starting and then stopping 
I think we've got to be uh, brave. There is a lack of clinical leadership in this country. And it goes back, I think, to the Griffiths changes in the 80s, which alienated a lot of doctors, both in hospital but also in general practice. Hospital has done better over the years through its managed systems. But in general practice, very few of the PCTs initially had appointed medical directors. They relied uh, from general practice. They relied on um, chairs of the executive committees without real power on the board. In public health, uh, they all had a medical director from public health because we had a very powerful chief medical officer. In nursing, we had a, a nurse on every board, but we didn't have an influencing GP or GPs. To make this work, we need clinically-led, clinically-dominated boards to make those decisions. We're nearer to patients. We understand that hurt that patients have when we have difficulty referring, when it takes six weeks to get an ultrasound scan when you're blocked throughout the system. So the time is right for change. The realistic bit is, how do you ensure that the managers are supporting the GPs? Because frankly, in some areas, they've opposed and blocked things that we've been doing. You can read it yourself in Hansard in the review from the Health Select Committee on commissioning. In other areas where we had some brilliant managers and brilliant GPs, it's worked. The big problem is what happens in the middle. How do you get the GPs infused now and trust the system? And you get how do you get the high-quality chief execs and managers to support the GPs? You did hint there at sort of a, a slightly more pessimistic uh, angle on, on, on your views. One of the more pessimistic views, I think, around GP budgeting is how much enthusiasm is there going to be for this? And if it's made mandatory... How will that go down with the GPs? What, what, what's your view on that question? Well, I think the problem is um, we don't know what the detail is on the contracting for this, really. I mean, if commissioning is kept separate to the uh, core GP contract, it makes it more uh, easier for people to sign up and do. We've been pushing very hard as well on federations, practices coming together, uh, working together to deliver care. What we've got to try and do very quickly is create groupings of practices and GPs to take this agenda forward whilst we're waiting for some of the detail on how it's actually going to work which as you know the uh, Department of Health is scurrying around trying to deliver at the moment. The problem is at the moment today we don't have the fine detail but I think this is a wonderful opportunity for GPs and nurses and specialist clinicians to get involved in commissioning. I think Chris Ham's absolutely right. This won't work unless we've got specialist input right from the start. This won't work unless we've got specialist commissioning advice. Whether it's from people in PCTs or from external bodies, we need both to make this happen. In terms of the cost of that, can this happen at a sufficient scale? Or I think as one of the questions earlier this morning was suggesting, are we just going to see a duplication of some of these support functions and therefore increased management costs? I think one of the the questions is about scale. Uh, People talk about 100,000 population, but I think we need to put that to one side. We should allow small projects which are working now to continue and allow very large commissioning groups, perhaps uh, whole cities going together, uh, would be one way forward. So I think we should be less fixed on scale uh, and just about making it happen. And then you'll see how uh, primary care trusts, if they are going to be the ring holders locally, will work. There is an argument to say that you can bypass those and talk at a much 
higher level, say a regional office of the uh, new NHS board might be a more doable um, solution because clearly in some areas, probably not in Ealing, but in other areas, we know the evidence is that PCTs have obstructed world-class commissioning. It's in Hansard. Must be true. (laughs) I'm sure Robert will want to come back on that one, but I'm going to turn now to you, Malcolm. Perhaps less in the coalition programme for government about major changes to uh, the hospital or acute sector. Indeed, the, the, the rhetoric is of, of no change, or at least only clinically-led change. What do you think the, the coalition proposals are going to mean for the acute sector, and particularly perhaps foundation trusts? Well, there are some underlying problems, uh, which uh, have been alluded to uh, in discussion earlier, which remain whatever the kind of nuance of policy at any given time. And Although... In saying this, you speak against yourself. I'm some of them pretty clear and present. I mean, hospitals have become warehouses for older people with long-term conditions. The, the model has defaulted to that. We have to throw that into reverse gear. It doesn't matter which side of the argument you're on and what kind of policy mechanism you use for articulating it. It remains the case. It might be because of opportunities posed by a proposed policy changes or it might be in spite of them, as uh, one or two of us have been doing at the moment. I am worried if I can just segue back to the targets I am worried that we might end up losing the framework by which we can do some of this by throwing the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to the targets the, um, if you take the uh, emergency department 4 hour one uh, that is effectively to sustain flow through a hospital uh, somebody referred earlier to ED consultants being the ones who would make the decisions about how long people waited in fact my experience if you go back to the early 90s when the 24 hour trolley waiter became a regular phenomenon those ED consultants felt very powerless because uh, that would be happening to them at the same time as a liver transplant patient would be flown in uh, as soon as the liver became available and transplanted on. It was a reflection of power differences uh, within the acute system and the elderly, the distressed elderly were at the receiving end of that. If we, if we go for a wholesale jettisoning of those targets, process targets though they are, we could end up getting into uh, too much uh, instability. If we accept the David Nicholson proposition that about the 20 billion or there or thereabouts Robert was uh, making some uh, uh, references to experience many years ago but I have to say I don't think any of us uh, have experience for the kind of uh, financial retrenchment that uh, is required in the next uh, probably two comprehensive spending cycles if our experience could be a good source of ignorance for this we have to think about uh, changing the way we do things and the way we lead Uh, very, very substantially. I don't think any of us has anything on the CV which is remotely close uh, to where we need to go. And so that raises a really broad issue for me about management capability. Uh, Even if uh, we're willing, are we capable? I think the nature of our work is changing considerably in acute services uh, because although we were doing cuts in the 80s and the 90s, we weren't doing clinical quality, we didn't have an information base for that clinical quality in the way we do now. Nobody is going to vote or come back to us and say, it's okay, you can drop clinical quality, while at the same time as making the financial changes necessary, and quite right that they, they don't. So that kind of complexity requires a very sophisticated and a very energetic uh, kind of animal, and I'm not sure how many of those are around. Interestingly, uh, when we talk to prospective management trainees um, uh, coming into the national training system, uh, they are now beginning to say they don't want to be chief executives or even directors uh, because of the demands that uh, will go with the job, which they regard as unacceptable. 
uh, but at least they're beginning to understand the size of the task. So I think big issues about capability uh, allied with, aligned with uh, willingness. And people tend to move on to the argument that, uh, well, a bit more clinical leadership and clinical engagement uh, will help with this, and that's what's been lacking over the years. Yes, it's true, but you've got to make sure that that clinical engagement and leadership uh, is about uh, leadership against a good vision for development of your institution and your clinical system, as opposed to, well, you can't whip the workers anymore, let's get the workers to whip themselves, which is uh, a danger in the, uh, in, in the current environment. So how you sell that in terms of building a local system which your acute trust is a part is going to be very, very challenging. Lastly, a point that hasn't come up so far, I, I'm intrigued by the moratorium, uh, particularly in London, on significant uh, organisational change. And I'm, in an outer London context, I'm really, really worried about this, partly because I think there are many benefits which are very information-driven by doing it, but also there is a danger that this will back too much the direction towards the social networking and social movement piece. Uh, and having come from in London, where you can get 30 people to turn up to a meeting on children's cardiac surgery, to the provinces where you can get 500 people to turn up to a public meeting, uh, we see this social movement, uh, social networking and social movement development very, very powerful whenever an idea of significant change comes up. One, uh, frankly, enlarged rumour uh, in Leicester caused uh, a social networking development of enormous proportions. Uh, so goodness knows what we're going to get uh, when we get into uh, serious uh, organisational ch organizational change, if indeed we get there. So I'm a bit worried that we're, we're in danger of making obstacles for ourselves. On the other hand, if you are out in the provinces, rather than having a suit like me, you know, one of the faces bureaucrats get up and uh, propose uh, the realignment of hospitals or services, if you're doing a deal with your primary care colleagues about uh, moving their services much closer together, even into the local community hospital, rather puts a different complexion on something which would previously have had 20,000 people marching down the streets. So there are ways and means uh, of doing this. So I realise I'm going over my time. I just want to, one point before I forget. There is also a really exciting opportunity, I think, to rethink for acute services the difference between, between core and non-core services. Uh, we have an history of thinking... Um, uh, of so many things as within the ambit of core services and then there are things like non-clinical support services and finance and IT and HR which are non-core. On the other hand, a, a different kind of thesis, if you take say something like pathology, you could argue at the risk of uh, offending people in the room that it's still organised on a cottage industry basis, hasn't met the first industrial revolution yet, let alone the second. And ironically, having distributed it like that, we create shortages about which people get very worried. Whereas if you talk to prospective uh, external partners, they'll say, well, you only need about five or six cold pathology sites for the whole of England. Shouldn't you and I get into discussion about an M1 pathology corridor? But a complete rethinking uh, of the way uh, of, of our attitude to what's core and non-core with some huge opportunities. Uh, but again, in the spirit of current policy, developing things like partnership and joint venture opportunities to deliver those. Okay, Th thanks very much, uh, Malcolm. I, I think a um, lot of issues there we, we might come back to, but um, in the interest of time, I'm going to move now to um, get Jeremy's perspective. Malcolm, you outlined there the sort of social movement, how the public and patients get involved when these sorts of decisions are about change and cuts are occurring. We've heard from the coalition government lots of rhetoric about empowering patients, and what, what do you think the coalition government proposals are going to mean for uh, patients and, and the public? Well, I mean, first of all, if you, 
the high-level vision, the rhetoric uh, set out by the government is, is incredibly reassuring, and I think both in terms of uh, the actual words but also the un underlying motivations. I think that any idea that there was an ideological gap closing, uh, opening up between those who supported uh, an NHS uh, essentially on the beverage model and those who didn't has, has essentially disappeared in the last few years. And that's a great mm -hmm. achievement. And actually what the new government appears to be proposing is largely continuity with the settlement that we've had in the last few years uh, in, in our analysis. Obviously there are some important uh, differences, but they're, they're, if you like, more technocratic and managerial, if you like, than ideological. So I think there is cause for optimism about the overall approach. I don't think we're going to go back to a system where quality doesn't matter, where patient uh, experience doesn't matter, where oversight and scrutiny and accountability don't matter. We've seen important advances in, in those areas and important advances in, in clinical outcomes. Um, um, and I, I think, that, so to some extent, the, the settlement has, has been banked, and that's great. But, but, but at the same time, there is a lot of cause for worry, not least, as other speakers have said, because we just don't know the detail yet, and the devil will, as it always does, uh, lie in the detail. One enduring feature, I think, of the, the health service over the last few years is no, certainly the previous government, possibly no government, has ever really cracked how you translate good policy intentions, assuming they are good, into practice on the ground. We don't seem to have a good model for the replication of good local practice. And it's fascinating, Chris mentioned Torbay. I've been at various King's Funds events over the last uh, few months. I've only been around in this sector for a few months. I'm still the new kid on the block. Torbay is often mentioned, along with one or two others, as a kind of outstanding but lonely example of good practice of integration of health and social care. Why? Is it because we just don't know enough about what's going on in other places, possibility, or is it because we're just not good at identifying what is good and rolling it out? It's a, it's a source of frustration, I think, within the patient and user movement uh, that we know there's good stuff going on there, but, but a lack of a mechanism for rolling it out. So, and on the issue of major service uh, reconfiguration, uh, actually, I think there is a distinction between the general public attitude, as set out very you know, entertainingly by Ben, uh, and the views of patients, uh, with a health warning that patients and service users and carers and families are a huge diverse, uh, you know, as diverse mm -hmm. as the population, so it's difficult to generalise. But I think there are some differences... People with a stake, an ongoing stake in the system, particularly people with long-term conditions and their carers, tend to take actually a more informed and realistic view about what is both good and not so good, and I think are generally up for change. And I think there are good examples of service reconfiguration, particularly along care pathway lines, which have gone very well. Uh, so I think there's room for optimism that we can carry on doing major service change. In the run-up to the election, National Voices put its head above the parapet and said, in terms, we didn't quite put it this way, but it closing DGHs, particularly those that have become warehouses for people with long-term conditions, ain't necessarily a bad thing, actually. Let's get real. This may be a way of saving money if we can close some of these down, and it may be a way of uh, using those resources to provide better care. Uh, however, but, 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 it's got to be handled in the right way. And what that right way is is difficult and I think uh, Malcolm I, and I share your worry about social networking and you know and, uh, and the the ease with which um, uh, rumours if you like can lead to uh, a situation getting getting wildly out of control but but I think there is enough evidence out there to suggest that if you start 
with the <coughs> presumption, and you being the NHS, if you like, start with the presumption that we have got some difficult trade-offs to make, and we'd like to involve you patients in the system primarily, but also the local communities, in how we shape those decisions. That tone of conversation, that partnership approach, I think in itself could, could make a, a, a big difference. I just want to make a few other points, because I know you're going you're gonna to call me, rein me in at some point. <laughs> just a few things that I don't think have been mentioned before, or not explicitly. We're supposed to be looking forward to the next five years, and we've focused quite a lot on the £20 billion challenge. But actually, the challenge is bigger than that. The £20 mm. billion pounds is, is the interim. The bigger mm. challenge is demographic and other changes mm. that are driving ever-increasing costs. So uh, the, the efficiency challenge is even more worrying than the short-term £20 billion one. As Chris, I think, rightly pointed out and emphasised, it ain't just health care. It's health and social care. And many of the people that we represent, of course, straddle both those boundaries. And... Um, one of our worries is that the, the rhetoric and um, statements of the new government, while uh, there is much to applaud and, and welcome and feel positive about, uh, are very much set in an NHS framework, perhaps more than the previous government. And we want to hear more about the blurring and integration between health and social care, not least because social care funding, as has already been pointed out, has, is not ring-fenced, therefore is likely actually to be cut in the short term. And that, that's, that's really worrying. So long-term conditions was mentioned. It's really, really important. There are a huge number of people who would like uh, to be empowered to manage their conditions better. Ben Page was saying, the public want everything. They want more. We all want more. We're curmudgeonly and difficult and irrational and, and demanding and ungrateful. And, you know, as a population, that's probably true. But actually, there is some evidence that people uh, who have an ongoing engagement with the system have a better understanding and, uh, and actually in some ways want less they want the opportunity to have less invasive and less expensive ways of dealing with them if they're only given the opportunity. So uh, let's please make a big uh, step change in the way we help people with long-term conditions to get a better deal, which includes not wasting expensive resources on managing them, which they don't necessarily want. OK, I'm going to stop you there, Jeremy, because I think in terms of the discussion, I'm sure some of the extra points that you may not have had a chance to make, well, you'll be able to hopefully bring those into discussion, because I'm very keen that some of the issues that have been raised on the panel, that we get a chance to debate and, and, and probe them a bit further. So I'm going to open up now to um, get some challenge from the audience. So if you have questions or issues uh, that you'd like to follow up from some of the things that have been said, or new questions or issues that you'd like to pose to the panel, please um, indicate and uh, we'll get a microphone to you. If you could just say who you are and where you're from, that'd be great. Uh, Alistair Little, um, King's Fund today. <laughs> I just want to pick up on um, Chris's fourth challenge, which was really about innovation, and uh, Jeremy developed that uh, as well. Um, and I think, I hope it's sort of reasonably widely understood that the NHS is actually very good at invention and very poor at spreading uh, and diffusion. So I've got three related questions. Um, I'm sorry about that, but they are they make are them very related. quick, Alistair. Very I will. quick. First of all, how is, how central is innovation to? And I'm looking particularly at um, uh, Robert and Malcolm. How central is innovation to your uh, strategy for responding to the financial pressures? And uh, that's a sort of question expecting the answer yes but you know we need to get beyond the rhetoric because it's very easy to say it's very important so because there are qu quite a lot of risks I think around innovation and they may therefore be put to one side. Do you want to get to questions two and three otherwise okay. I'm going to cut you short. All right um, so can we have some practical examples of how you're adopting system innovations from elsewhere 
in developing your strategy? And thirdly, what do you think more generally needs to be done to stimulate diffusion of existing good practice throughout the NHS? Okay, I think that's actually quite a big topic, so I'm going to let the panel have a, a go at that while perhaps uh, others of you are having a think about further questions. This issue of innovation, we heard this morning about wanting disruptive competition. Looking ahead to the next uh, five years, how important is that going to be? How ready are we for it? And uh, um, answering some of Alistair's questions. Do you want to kick off with that, Steve? I know you like I thought, innovation. Well, I thought I was excluded from the innovation question because I'm a GP, but, um, <laughs> but thanks for that. Um, the uh, disruptive idea is interesting. So I, I uh, am part of the faculty which teach disruptive innovation at Harvard. The bigger issue, rather than the integrated systems for me there, is how do you allow things which are outside the culture of the organisation that you've got to come forward and uh, take over? Uh, so a disruption for me would be something like the minute clinic system in America where pharmacies are doing much more protocol-driven minor illness, um, you prescribing uh, along various clinical pathways. And the evidence after seven years of that is that the costs are reduced and they manage their protocols better. Uh, in the Isle of Wight in this country, uh, there's some unpublished data uh, looking at pharmacies managing asthma and um, respiratory care. They do better than GPs at doing that. They're cheaper. They follow protocols. GPs don't tend to follow protocols very well uh, because we always think of the abnormal rather than the, the normal. We always try to box and cox around an issue. So our management of hypertension isn't as good as our nurses. So the challenge for me is, uh, you can talk about uh, diffusion of innovation, but we need a lot of support in primary care just to deliver the care that's needed. So why are we not uh, recruiting and training physicians' assistants across this country to support the GPs deliver the care? We know there's a good course in Birmingham, it's under threat. There are other areas where, around the world where you pass care along protocols to cheaper uh, people working under the wing of the doctor, if you like. And nurses have a particular role, but physicians' assistants. So even though we know the evidence, we don't do anything. And, and one of the things I wanted to pick up later was how do we actually sort out workforce in this country? We're training nurses in hospitals, not in primary care, yet we need to transfer care out into primary care very quickly. GP training is too short. Not all GPs can actually take a placement in paediatrics in this country. It's a disgrace. So there are some simple things we need to sort out before we start to go uh, crazy on, on little disruptions. Uh, but actually, if we start to look at what's happening around the world, it's relatively easy. And this also picks up Jeremy's challenge about replication of a good practice, I think, not only being inventive but diffusing that. Mark? Yeah, so thanks for the questions, Alistair. Um, one of the problems is health services institutions hate each other uh, historically, so they do their best not to imitate each other. So every time you come away from an event, a seminar, a conference, it's, well, they did that in Gloucester, but of course it wouldn't work in dot, dot, dot. We are what the uh, organisational sociologists call non-isomorphic organisations. We don't like um, trading uh, on each other's best practice. That's why the phrase best practice makes people reach for their revolvers quite often when you uh, see the expression above their uh, foreheads. 
And uh, so we're not very good. Uh, the evidence shows that where this is done best, sorry, where the diffusion is done best, as opposed to the invention, which we tend to be good at, is where people move across the boundaries rather a lot, act out the role of what Trish Greenhouse calls the boundary spanner. But of course, in recent years, we've been encouraged to fragment, as um, Chief Executive in the States said to a group of us last year, you're a system that pretends not to act like a system. So Chris Ham's point about getting back to or developing uh, your system perspective and the leadership of that system perspective so that boundary spanning becomes typical as opposed to unusual will be very important. But before we rush to innovation as the answer, you'll notice that innovation was the answer about 18 months ago. Then mood music out of the Department of Health changed a bit, shifted a bit. Uh, there's plenty that can be done on the efficiency ticket. We have become fantastically uh, almost spendthrift uh, in our use of money uh, in back office uh, services. You know, in in, a, in an environment with four, uh, two PCTs and two providers, we have four HR departments, four finance departments, uh, at least two IMT departments. Uh, and when you add in public services in the rest of Leicestershire, this is my example, the amount of money you spend before you as much as see a patient is 200 million quid. Now, uh, frankly, if uh, that was to become a headline in the Daily Mail, there'd be people hanging from their thumbs, I should think, afterwards. I mean, that's, uh, and we are program manager, uh, project manager, assistant project manager, absolutely crazy. Uh, we have to dismantle a lot of that apparatus. And in a sense, you've got some sympathy with both the previous government on management cost reductions and the com current government in terms of burning bureaucracy a bit. There is a lot that we can do and should do. And I suspect, uh, mainly I suppose a bit mischievously picking up on Steve Field's point, we will get the benefits of just loosening the knots a bit so that we can get on with uh, a bit more innovation. Interesting, it's, it's interesting again hearing Steve talk about the physician's assistant. So one of the other challenges for innovation is professionalism, uh, as we do tend to come up, tinker up against professional boundaries here. When uh, the Peterborough Hospitals Trust introduced the idea of the physician's assistant in 1997, uh, the nursing press went absolutely bananas about this and uh, when uh, three years later uh, Peterborough developed the direct access cataract system which is actually an idea uh, produced by the ophthalmologists and their nurses in spite of no support from the modernization agency who quote said this is too radical unquote uh, they did it in spite not only of that opposition but some hosti hostility and cold shouldering from some of their colleagues in the ophthalmology world uh, which is not easy for them and at the same time it wrecked their private practice interestingly it's when you move from 14 months to four weeks in terms of your total waiting time package uh, there are fewer people to see at the local Bupa uh, um, institution so there, there are a lot, there's a lot there I think that uh, if you build on that system point there's a lot that we can do both to invent but also to diffuse much more but we're going to have to be realistic uh, and candid about uh, dealing with the blockers maybe in ways that we haven't done before Robert? I'm very happy if you want to move on to another question because um, I'm conscious that there's time running out but I should just make one very quick point uh, I'm not quite sure how the discussion about innovation got onto a discussion about management costs but the issue throws into very very careful uh, light the, the tension between local and national um, the lean programme which is I think a very good innovation we are implementing very very hard picking it up from elsewhere and transmitting transmitting it on. We are really working hard to pick something from a national position and drive it locally. At the same time, um, I've set up a what I call a DNR network for the local GPs in a very in the most deprived part of the of the borough in Southall, with the deliberate intention of trying to grow innovation from the bottom. 
And what's going to be very interesting and actually quite difficult is to uh, make that stuff that comes up from the bottom consistent with what is coming in from elsewhere. And already we're seeing quite a few tensions. Um, can I, can I sorry, just interject one very, very brief, because I can't resist to saying something about innovation and best practice. Just Malcolm's comment that uh, in parts of the NHS, the words best practice makes people reach for their revolvers. I think it would be an interesting thing for me to feed back to our membership. And it says something slightly dismaying about uh, yeah, culture and incentives. So my, my, my approach here would be if the not invented here culture is very strong and a big blocker, then we need to address it probably with different incentives for rewarding um, good uh, managerial leadership in the NHS. I also would look to professional and clinical leadership uh, as a way of uh, um, articulating and embedding good practice. But I know there were Treasury colleagues here earlier. Um, uh, part of my murky past is I used to work in the, in the Treasury. So I know a bit about incentives. Incentives are really important. And you know, if there are incentives working against uh, the, um, the um, diffusion of good practice, then you know, something should be done about that because it's pretty crap. I always worry about innovation in the sense that it's as if everything new is good. And I do worry that in this current environment, we've got to be really careful, particularly when we know there's an awful lot of things we already know about which we're not doing, and that too much effort going on inventing new things rather than getting on and and delivering the things. So I think if there's an emphasis between the I of innovation and quip or D of diffusion, I sometimes think we should probably be doing more on the D rather than the I. But um, nonetheless, the challenges are so great, we inevitably do need to continue to embrace innovations, um, particularly challenging, I think, are some of the workforce ones, which Steve started to flag. And I think we maybe should come back to some of the workforce challenges posed by the agenda, something that hasn't really been uh, addressed yet. But are there any more questions or, or, or issues from the floor? Um, Judy Hilly, Excellent Healthcare. Um, if we're looking to, towards the next five years, and in fact five to ten to twenty years, could the panel advise how they feel the educators should be involved in this? Because you're looking at the leaders of today, but actually we've got to look at the leaders of tomorrow and we've got to influence how we deliver the care. I, I just happen to be in a family of 20 GPs. <laughs> Poor so you. I'm very oh, no. <laughs> uh, I am a nurse by background. But I'm very well aware um, in my role also in Solent Healthcare that we are not really educating the future leaders. Okay, good question. I think it's one down the front. Matt Williams, Grace, um, Strategic Healthcare. Following on from that point, is it not more cost effective if we're cutting back on managerial costs to incorporate commissioning training within GP training. Is that Mike Barsby, mental health care? I think we all already accept clearly, don't we, that plastic surgery and things like uh, tattoo removals are not services covered by the NHS. I'd be interested in the panel's view as to which three other items might disappear off the menu in the next three to five years. I think in the interest of time, I'm going to try and collect up um, a couple more uh, points from the floor and then I'm going to come to the panel. So. Uh, Paul Mobeck from NHS Warwickshire. Uh, Anna, you, earlier on you showed a graph which showed uh, correlation between high levels of deprivation and low levels of GPs, but you could have also put a graph up that showed high levels of deprivation and high levels of NHS funding and, co- and in relation to that high levels of deprivation but also continued high levels of health inequality. I just wonder for Steve, what, um, what, what is it that the GPs are going to do that the PCTs haven't been able to do to address that? And also raises a question about resource allocation which the Conservatives certainly have suggested that they would be looking to change the relationship between funding and deprivation so that could prove quite challenging. 
Okay, so a lot of issues on the table there. Who would, I think I'm going to come to Robert first because I came to him last last time, so he gets a chance to take his pick of questions. I don't think that's a problem. I think the priorities one I'd like <laughs> to make sure because I think if anybody's going to be making decommissioning or uh, involving the public in rationing decisions, we might well be looking to primary care trust to do some of that. So, Well, no, we're looking to GPs to do that. Okay. I mean, seriously. And I mean, it goes back to, to Paul's last point. What is going to be different if the if you're thinking of setting up a system in which general practitioners form themselves into clusters and then have responsibility for hard budgets, um, just in the same way allegedly that I do? There will be increasingly, I'm sure, a requirement on them and for everybody else to make decisions about what is not done. I'm not going to fall into the trap of saying what the three my three favourite would be. Um, I can set up a number of committees to do that and spend a lot more <laughs> management costs. But no, I mean, it would have to involve the patients and the public too, Jeremy, very much. But whichever, whoever is in charge, somebody's going to have to do that because I cannot see that the system is going to continue to be able to provide, even with all the costs that um, Malcolm thinks can come out, uh, without uh, instituting a tighter degree of control. And, and we can only... Uh, I, I think it's perfectly a reasonable theory to believe that you can do that better at a local level by engaging with local uh, clinicians and local people, uh, and you may be able to end up with um, some decisions that would not otherwise be uh, easily, readily achievable. What you will then get is a great multiplicity of different systems around the country, and I'm not sure that any government can reasonably accommodate that. I haven't answered the question, but I hope I've given some food for thought. Yeah, well, certainly Ben's uh, earlier public survey data suggests that we're not going to tolerate local differences. So uh, there is a question, uh, Steve, about how involved GPs would get yeah. on priority setting. <clears throat> well, I think there are two angles on priority setting. One is we need to get rid of the variation in care that GPs and our teams are providing. Uh, and we need to look very closely. And the only way we can do that is by more transparency, um, better data so that uh, practices can look across at individuals and between practices. So we, we need to iron out the variation and, and look at good practice. Why, in my own practice, can I refer my 800 military patients to see a physio within 24 hours, which keeps them in work? The physio actually works in the room next to me, whereas my NHS patients have to wait about three months and go a mile away uh, and for some of them, two bus rides away, by that time they're off work. You know, the, what we have at the moment is a system which doesn't work consistently uh, everywhere. And I do think there is a role then for, for a level above, let's call it a primary care trust, to make sure that you know, across a bigger area uh, the variations are addressed. But actually it'll be GP-led groups, which might be the size of the city of Leicester might well be that sort of size. I don't think we should be looking at small groups necessarily. In a rural area, it might be very different. The, the educator thing is a very good question because part of this whole... I, I'm in disruptive innovation mode at the moment because we have to relearn it all for next week. So, you know, I have to read all this stuff. And a large part of it is about workforce. And the prediction on workforce, if you follow any of the, the rules in business, is that you initially start off with lots of specialists. 
and then you pass things you know as things become more rules based or protocol driven to 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 the human being which is the patient so in diabetes care we needed lots of specialists in 1920 when insulin was discovered actually in the states now they're using pretty sensitive pumps for insulin at imperial they're using elastoplast sugar monitoring you know we, if we could get those innovations in you need fewer of the very expensive specialists you actually need fewer of the uh, generalists as well and you put your money into protocols and cheaper workforce so what we've got to try and do using Leicester as, a, as an average size um, large uh, town stroke city in this country because London's atypical anyway you need a workforce plan across that sort of area which tells you how many generalists you need and yes you've got to put some of them into longer training to learn about management leadership commissioning right from the start but you'll also need nurses trained in the community to deliver the care. Why don't we have general therapists that are doing the OT, physio, nursing role, rather than all the different professional groups? The block is generally culture, either in the institution or in the, in the professions. And I get into trouble usually after King's Funds meeting because people tend to report what I say in the GP press. And it sounds very negative for general practice, which it isn't. I think GPs have a fantastic future. Longer consultations dealing with complexity, people with four or five conditions. But they can't do that whilst they carry on doing what a lot of they're doing now, which is minor illness needs to move towards the patient. We need to work as part of the team and we need to integrate with specialists so that when we look at the outcome measures, it's not just the short-term process measure in practice that's in COF. But what's the outcome for diabetes over a care pathway and that integrated team? The specialist has got as much to play in that as the GP or the patient. And generalists doing all that and contributing to reduced health inequalities and delivering a public health agenda? Well, come on, it's failed so far. So we're starting off on a... On a, on a <laughs> no, let's get real about this. Um, the, in the inequality gap, there is evidence that it's grown. Okay. If you look at the uh, health care of very, very uh, difficult groups to reach, prostitutes, uh, sex workers, the travelling population, asylum seekers, this country is generally, it's a disgrace. There are pockets of good practice, but generally it's awful. So let's, let's take the good things we talked about earlier on, but if we're talking about inequalities, we're talking about the population, I think we can do much better, and I think we can do that with strong clinical leadership. Jeremy, do you want to come in on uh, some of those points? What, what do you think uh, National Voices would put on the uh, list of the three top things to uh, be left out? I'm sure you're going to avoid the question as to I'm going to answer point. the question, but, if it in, but, you know, it's about, well, in fact, I think Malcolm uh, answered it. It's about involving patients and the public. I think it has to be done at national and local level, and it has to be done on the basis of evidence of what works and doesn't work in terms of alleviating uh, suffering um, uh, against the measures that we have. So it's got to be evidence-based and it's got to have a democratic element to it. But I, I'm kind of with Steve that I think the emphasis is not on decommissioning particular treatments for things which are, I mean, in the end, that it's a largely marginal discussion. It's much more about how we deliver uh, the treatments that we have to deliver for the generality of people, the big killer conditions, the big conditions that cause the greatest suffering and dealing with the unacceptable levels of, of um, uh, unacceptable variations in practice. Uh, that, that has got to be the priority. 
I think the question about uh, how do we educate the, the leaders of the future is a really good one. I'm not quite sure whether, were you talking about professional clinical leadership or managerial leadership, political leadership, I wasn't clear, but I think the, uh, I guess I'm with, uh, I'm, I'm in danger of agreeing too much with Steve, but I kind of think the vision that you set out of clinical practice that's increasingly uh, multidisciplinary, crossing traditional institutional boundaries is so important. And I think there's something about ensuring that as somebody from the John Lewis Partnership said recently at an event that I was at on the subject of if John Lewis were to run the NHS, it was quite entertaining. We hire for attitude and we fire for attitude was the soundbite that everybody carried away. And she went on to say, we used to hire for competence. Then we discovered that you can teach people what they need to know, but you cannot teach attitude. You've got to hire the right people. And that relates very much to a, an event I was at just the other week on compassion and the importance of compassion and the related qualities of uh, listening, good communication, helping people um, manage their own conditions, working in partnership, the whole battery of social and communication skills that we continue not to sufficiently emphasise in the way that we recruit and then subsequently train health professional staff. So in a word, I would say the education challenge going forward is to put the human back into clinical training. Malcolm, particularly on the workforce and some of the training, uh, training for the future, if there's a lot more care going to be delivered outside of hospital, what are we doing to plan and develop the right workforce, both to lead that and deliver it? Yeah, not enough, I think, is the answer. Um, that's why, because again, it's groups living in their separate worlds, which is why you can come up with things like modernising medical careers uh, all of a sudden. But seriously, there are some opportunities, and to be fair to the previous government, they were beginning to grasp this. Firstly, in terms of a push to more applied research, uh, dealing with populations rather than um, fruit flies and fish entirely. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but getting the balance right is very important. Because that applied research is already beginning to give us lessons that we need to put uh, into changing education and training. For example, if you pick up Steve's point, we are discovering on long-term conditions there is much greater commonality of treatment indications for those conditions, therapy uh, rehabilitation indications, which means that you can begin to think about treating them as a block. The problem with slicing things according to diabetes, COPD, uh, chronic renal failure is, of course, if you're dealing with one strand, uh, you make it costly by itself and you increase fragmentation, whereas if you're dealing with a block of, uh, say, similarly applying cardiovascular conditions, you can look at that differently. So learning that needs to be put into the education process. And to be fair, as I was going to be to the previous government, things like these Hayek's Health Innovation Education Clusters should, if used correctly, be an opportunity to do that. But that will require both, if you like, the research side, the educating side, and the providing side being more sensitive to each other than they have been uh, historically. I just want to go back to your man and tattoos or what else it is you'd stop doing, because that's the assumption, isn't it? It'd be a few less tattoos or less indications for varicose vein treatment and so on. On the other hand, the look at it uh, slightly differently. The significant investment in the treatment, diagnosis and treatment of lung cancer has made absolutely no difference in 40 years in survival after five years. No difference, no perceptible difference apart from one or two variations locally, including uh, through our service at Glenfield, I hasten to add. But, so, but do, you, do you want to follow Robert's point and then push the uh, public into saying, right, we agree with that, let's remove all treatment as a public uh, diagnosed treatment of lung cancer because it makes no difference. Concentrate entirely on smoking, uh, which is reduced by half and has made the difference of halving the incidence of lung cancer. Tricky territory. 
Um, so the point is, this is all formative, and we're pretending it's summative, so we can sit down, there's the evidence, make the decisions. It moves tomorrow. You, you, uh, we you, have to be much more sensitive. You might follow that up by asking whether the screening programmes have made any difference. I mean, there's a huge exactly big so. debate about that. Exactly uh, so. There's massive amount, I mean, I do agree with, with Malcolm's earlier point, there's a massive amount of money tied up in existing activity and existing treatment, which is not of proven benefit. How we get that out is the biggest mystery to me. Okay, in the last couple of minutes, I'm afraid we're going to have to hold questions. I'm going to come to each of the panellists. We've heard a lot today about future challenges. Uh, some of those have been shorter term. Some of them have been what we uh, predict for the next five years. Uh, we've debated and discussed the possible implications of some of the very high-level coalition government uh, proposals. But what I'd like to ask each of you just to finish with is if there was one thing that you were to say to the new coalition government, either about how they should implement one of their existing proposals or one of the priority issues that they should be dealing with and tackling in the coming uh, 12 months, what uh, would that be? So I'm just going to give them just a moment to think about that. Uh, The King's Fund will be looking at many of the issues that we have touched on today and we do hope publishing what will be useful contributions both to the policy debates but also uh, making recommendations about some of the more practical applications and and changes that are are needed for us to uh, as a health system face these uh, many and significant uh, challenges as we look ahead to the next five years so um, do hope that there'll be events and publications for you to look at so I'm going to uh, start at my right with uh, Jeremy and go in uh, reverse order of the order I started in so Jeremy uh, one key thing to say to the new coalition government In your haste to reduce the burden of NHS administration costs, remember that part of that NHS administration burden is uh, good managerial and indeed good clinical leadership. Do everything you can not to harm that but to enhance and reinforce it because it's vital to everything else that we've been talking about today. Thank you, Jeremy. Thanks. Yeah, I'll I'll change tack. Um, I would say um, look at the public health agenda. I think it's important to focus on that uh, and... As we said earlier on, public health or the health of the public is more than the health service. But make sure that uh, GPs in commissioning and the excellent managers that will be working with us don't forget the public health agenda in the commissioning. It can't be done in splendid isolation with local government at a PCT. This is something everybody needs to be involved in. And let's look at some of the big public health initiatives that were included in the Chief Medical Officer's Awards, like uh, Streetwise, getting people exercise uh, and and have a sort of viral um, dissemination of good practice, good public health practice. I think that will actually help uh, the whole of the NHS and uh, the population of this country more than anything else. Thank you. Malcolm? Actually, strangely, I'd say that the bit I like most uh, with potential for the NHS uh, in your coalition document is in the bit on uh, culture, uh, Olympics, media and sport, which is to introduce measures to ensure rapid rollout of super fast broadband across the country, including remote access areas, because uh, it seems to me there's an enormous opportunity to use technology in a way that we actually haven't done, despite MPFIT's best efforts. Okay, thank you. Uh, And my advice would be that they have to manage their polarities with exceptional care. 
So they're going to have to balance uh, the award of incentives and releasing the market, as it were, against accountability. They're going to have to get the right balance between the local and the national, which is going to be really, really difficult, I think. And they're going to have to get the right balance between um, what you might call high-profile service change, uh, in brackets, uh, hospital closures, uh, and uh, local uh, public acceptability. Well, I think you'll agree that we've had some excellent contributions this morning uh, from our panellists. So I just uh, thank you for coming and ask you to join me in thanking our panel.